Bordy. Hello and welcome to the Vague Travel Podcast. I'm Lisa Francesca Nand. As a foreign correspondent for Reuters, best-selling novelist Fiona Neal worked with Salvadorian refugees in Nicaragua, learned to make jewellery in the Andean mountains of Peru, and travelled the length of Colombia, El Salvador, Guatemala and more, reporting on civil war refugees. Once back in the UK, she joined Marie Claire as features editor before joining The Times magazine, then becoming a novelist. Her new book, Beneath the Surface, is a gripping tale of secrets and lies set against the backdrop of the Fenlands in Cambridgeshire. And she's here now on the Big Travel Podcast. I'm Fiona Neal, and I'm a writer and sometimes journalist. I started my career as a journalist, but I have now morphed into a full-time writer. How did the morphing happen? The morphing happened by degrees, like everything with life. There wasn't a particular plan behind it. After my second daughter was born, I started writing a column in the Saturday Times magazine. It was a fictional column, a sort of comedy called Slummy Mummy. And I'd written it for two weeks. And after two weeks, a publisher phoned me and said, oh, we think you should turn this into a book. And that's how I ended up writing my first book. It wasn't a sort of very well thought out strategy. It all happened by a glorious lack of design, really. But you moved from... So you're doing very proper news journalism and then the the mummy stuff, which a lot of us do when we have kids. You suddenly, you know, that sort of takes up a lot of headspace. So you, it's quite nice to incorporate that in your work, especially if you're a freelance writer or media or creative in that way. But your novels took a different turn. Yes. Now, my novels... The, the first novel was... a an all-out comedy there there is no doubt about that and then they've just got consistently darker and darker since then and I think that's probably partly getting older because life does get slightly darker but also I think it's true that in the sort of early years of having children there's a lot of comedy to be had in the sort of the domestic foibles of having children and school gates and all of those sort of funny things that you come across but now I've sort of I've I've broadened out, so I'm sort of writing about dysfunctional families um, largely, and issues that affect us all. They're books that are very much set in contemporary reality, and they cover issues that everyone is affected by. So my last novel, The Betrayals, that was about there was an element of there was a, one of the characters had OCD. She was a teenage girl with OCD, and so. I did a lot of research into adolescent mental health, got in touch with OCD support groups and spoke to a lot of teenagers who were suffering from OCD and to make sure that absolutely that I could write a character completely accurately and reflect the horrible reality of having OCD, which is about so much more than just sort of lining up your socks in a colour-coordinated way. It's sort of belittles a mental illness actually the way that it's sort of been interpreted and then the novel before that there was a a strong theme related to teenage addiction and um, so I interviewed quite a lot of people about addiction and so yes the books have they're, you know, they're, they're obviously entertainment, but I'm, I think my journalistic background means that I'm quite interested in issues as well. So before we get on to the travel, I've got your new book in my hand. It's called Beneath the Surface, and then in smaller letters, Everyone Lies. Tell me a little bit about this novel. Beneath the Surface is about a 17-year-old girl called Lily 
who starts having these mysterious seizures when her family moved from Cambridge to the Fens, which is a very remote, desolate region north of Cambridge. Her mother becomes convinced that her daughter's been leading this secret life that she doesn't know about and starts to obsessively almost stalk her daughter to find out what's been going on. In reality, the daughter has found out something about her mother that her mother wanted to keep secret. And in the meantime, her younger sister, Mia, who's a very over-imaginative 10-year-old, the same day her sister falls ill with the first seizure, she goes to visit an Anglo-Saxon archaeological site that's in the Fens, and she starts to conflate the cause of her sister's illness with the fact that these archaeologists have dug up this burial site and released these sort of... They've disturbed the spirits of the dead and that they are sort of eking revenge on her sister and that's why her sister's fallen ill. And then other children from the same school start to fall ill and there's this sort of growing hysteria in the area that there's something in the water or in the atmosphere that's making everyone fall ill. That sounds amazing. I can't wait to read it. I know that your books are based quite locally in places that we know in the UK, but you've actually travelled really far and wide because you started off as a, a journalist for Reuters and I do believe even when you were training and at university you spent a lot of time in Latin America. Well, at university I studied Spanish and so like all linguists, the third year you're sent abroad and gloriously I was sent to Latin America for a year and Bristol University where I studied, they gave us a list of all the countries that we shouldn't visit And I thought, oh, well, these are absolutely the most interesting places to go. So, first of all, I went to Chile and I spent four months in Chile during the period when Augusto Pinochet was controlling Chile. So that was very interesting to see how life was under a fascist dictatorship. What was life like under a fascist dictatorship? It was very, very harsh. I mean, it was a real eye-opener, you know, for me coming from from England to, to, to Chile. There were... Lots of people who disappeared. There was still a lot of repression in the streets. It was the first time I was ever tear-gassed during a protest against government repression. When you say it's the first time you're ever tear-gassed, there's been other times. Well, yes, because then as a journalist, I mean, <laughs> there, were, there, were, there were other times. And then once I tear-gassed myself, but maybe <laughs> I... <laughs> that sounds like a wild night out. <laughs> Yeah, and then after that, I went to Nicaragua and spent four, four and a half months in Nicaragua living with refugees from El Salvador. And that was at the height of the Sandinista Revolution in Nicaragua. And so that was an incredibly interesting period as well, because there were people from all over the world had descended on Nicaragua. And it was just a sort of a melting pot of, um, you know, sort of left wing ideology. And it was also very interesting because the US government had obviously decided that Nicaragua, this tiny little country in Central America, represented a threat to their sort of geopolitical interests and had started mounting a war through the Contras on the Honduran border. And so it was very sort of interesting. There was a blockade. um, There was no food in the shops. There was electricity maybe three hours every day. Often there wasn't water. And it was just sort of very interesting to to witness this at, at first hand as a kind of as a as a student really i mean i i was still in my third year at bristol effectively what was your everyday reality like living amongst that well i ended up working in a workshop with salvadoran refugees who painted handicrafts 
and these were sold to sort of, you know, to raise money for refugees who'd fled El Salvador because there was a civil war going on in, in El Salvador at the time. And so my everyday reality really was um, living with these incredibly organised El Salvadorians who were very impressive people who had this routine we had a routine where everyone had to get up at five in the morning we all had sort of like different chores that we were meant to do sometimes we had to cook sometimes we had to scrub the floor and they were just incredibly impressive people I spent quite a lot of time in El Salvador as a journalist as well and I I always it it was actually one of my favorite countries in Latin America I'm, I'm just so saddened actually that the um, migrant caravans that have been going to the US and so many of the migrants who have been trying to get over the border post-Trump who've been locked up in detention centres, so many of them come from El Salvador and a lot of them are fleeing gang violence which was just beginning when I was still living in Latin America but the gang violence was actually an export from the US because it was all the gangs who had established in LA who had Latino roots who were sent back by the US government to El Salvador. So they sort of exported this terrible disease to Central America and that is now the reason why all these people are fleeing and don't want to stay in their homes. As if, as is often the case, you look a little bit deeper and the, the root of the problem has been caused by a Western country. Exactly. Uh, Western's the wrong word, but you know. I think people don't realise how these things play out over so much time. I mean, I am talking about a 23-year period here. But I think it's sort of such a good example how policies have really long-term repercussions for people. Exactly. So it's in the same sort of situation with Colombia and the cocaine wars. And, you know, that was as a direct result of what was happening in the States and then the demand and global demand in Western countries for coke. And then, you know, it's a whole a massive cycle that ends up people want to leave and then they want to come to your country and you're not letting them. It's just horrifying seeing the caged children and people torn away from their parents and that I can't even think about it really that heartbreaking picture not so long ago of the father that tried to swim the Mm. river with the little girl yeah they were from El Salvador and they were from an area of San Salvador which is absolutely ridden with gang violence because in El Salvador the Marisal de Trucha has literally taken over the entire country and so it's very difficult for ordinary families who are living within that to actually make a proper living because you know, the, the gangs do really properly control different areas of different cities throughout the country now. Nobody would take those huge risks without leaving something pretty hideous, to take, take those huge risks with their children. It's just absolutely heartbreaking. I think that's, you know, that's true of, that's true of all, all migrants. You know, people wouldn't leave their home unless they have to, because most people are pretty happy where they live. And most people want to stay near their families. Most people's aims in life are fairly simple, actually. Yeah, absolutely. Did you have any happy times when you were there? I, oh, bet, it was, I bet it was It was incredibly like good fun. I mean, being, being a, a news journalist is, is, is really, you know, it's a really great job because it's so adrenaline-filled. And working for a news agency, you've got to get the story out first and you're sort of in competition with your colleagues from other news agencies to get the story out. And So this I, is when you went back? This was, yes, the, this was after university. university yeah. Yeah. So after university, when I graduated, it was during a recession in the UK and I thought, actually, this is really not a time to be in the UK. And so, first of all, I got a job with an international refugee organisation that was based in Costa Rica and I started working there and that's when I 
first started going to El Salvador because they had quite a lot of projects with Salvadorians in El Salvador who were living in war zones. And so I first started visiting as a member of this international refugee organisation. Then they gave me a job which involved travelling around different countries in Latin America and researching why different populations had fled from their communities. So actually this time it wasn't really people crossing borders who became international refugees, it was people who were internally displaced within countries. So I spent time in Colombia and other countries, you know, looking at, at what was going on and that was incredibly interesting. But then I had this sort of... I was always writing reports for people who were really sympathetic to these populations and I just thought, gosh, these stories, they really need to be told and people need to read about them who don't know about this. So I started writing for a whole series of American newspapers and then I got offered a job with Reuters in Guatemala and I moved to Guatemala and I spent three and a half years working for Reuters in Guatemala but also covering sometimes El Salvador and sometimes going up to Mexico as well. You must have been in some quite dodgy areas at times. Did you feel vulnerable at any point? The truth is that being an international reporter back then, it was it was sort of an age of innocence. There were journalists who were killed in El Salvador in particular, but journalists generally, and international journalists in particular, weren't a target because it wasn't worth it for a government to, you know, go through the sort of international opprobrium if someone was killed. You know, it was definitely an age pre-ISIS when you could be an international reporter and... You, you had a certain amount of immunity and I was just always completely clear the people who were really in danger in those countries were the the local people and the local journalists as well. I mean, we were very lucky as internationals and so, I mean, sometimes, yeah, I you know, there were definitely moments of, of fear but everything sort of happened so fast and so quickly that they didn't really endure and also I was in my 20s. I was there until I was 30 and... I do think that we're a lot braver in our 20s than we are in our middle ages. We just don't feel fear in, in the same way. And there were many more people doing many braver things than what I was doing. And you just sort of think, yeah, they, those are the heroes. It's the, those are the heroes of the people from those countries every day, you know, sort of risking their lives. What described me one particular time that you did feel was a little bit close to the bone. There was an election, it was probably in the 1990s, and I'd been filing stories from my office in the centre of the city, and on the way home, um, a car followed me and tried to drive me from the road, it tried to get me off the road, but I actually just kept driving really, really fast down these very narrow roads and went home, and then there were lots of journalists staying, and I sort of almost forgot about it. I, I just didn't have that sort of... You know, now when I think about it, I think, oh, yes, this was quite frightening. I mean, there were military coups and earthquakes and all sorts of things, actually, but it was all part and parcel of sort of everyday life, and it was not a boring existence. It was a very exciting existence during a very kind of politically interesting period. I bet you met some fascinating people as well. Oh, yeah. I mean, you just... All the time you'd be... You know, you'd be you'd be meeting really you know really really interesting people doing very interesting things and people struggling to make a better life for themselves and make a better life for other people and then you'd meet quite nasty people as well and it was just yeah it was a very it was a it was an interesting period and I at the same time I was sort of writing quite long features for other magazines and so 
I did things like I went with a photographer into the jungle in Belize to go and interview Mennonites who had totally cut themselves off from society because they wanted to live in these very sort of pure, isolated communities where no Western culture could touch them. And that was incredibly fascinating as well. That they let you in there as well if they want to live in these isolated communities. Well, Did bizarrely, they also want when a I, bit of press? When, abs- they, they really weren't interested at all in any press. But bizarrely, when I knocked on the door, the mother answered the door and she was very tentative and looked around the door. And it's because she said, are you a Jehovah's Witness? Because the Jehovah's Witnesses... Had got into the middle got, of the jungle. Go into the middle of the jungle. <laughs> They're very tenacious. Very tenacious, but but we weren't Jehovah's Witnesses. So, it it was you know it was a, it was a very interesting period, and it's um. You How know, did you get through the jungle? We had a car, and a photographer friend and I. We you know we just drove this car. I mean, there were tracks into the into the jungle because you know these guys had made tracks and everything, and they 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 um. I remember <laughs> very clearly arriving at breakfast time and being offered breakfast which was pigs trotters and sauerkraut because their whole diet came from northern europe i mean they were living their culture was northern european from almost a hundred years ago they didn't drive they didn't wear they didn't use buttons they're very like the amish um buttons were deemed to be too proud they there was no music they had a very very sort of simple but highly insular existence well, I mean, where do I, they come from are they from europe are they european heritage? the ones in belize came from manitoba and canada but the ones who'd come from manitoba and canada originally came from northern europe fascinating how i mean obviously it's always it was ago. always the search for somewhere where no one would disturb them and are they religious i don't mm, know yeah no, they so are. A, it's a bit a, like the amish yeah they are it's it's they are very religious their whole life is built around religion. They were very, they were very nice people, but it was a very insular, inward-looking existence of day-to-day survival. Because actually, it was sort of humankind against nature there, and they were growing all their own crops. There was no medical help whatsoever. I mean, it was, it it was not an easy life for them, but it was the life that they had chosen. I did feel sorry for their children, though, because. It was the life their parents had chosen. And growing up as a girl in that culture, knowing that you would marry someone from a very small pool of choices, which also means a very small gene pool as well. I mean, I think that was quite restricting, although none of them expressed that. But I sort of... I, I could definitely feel that there, there was a sense of some of them wanting to know about life outside the, the jungle in Belize. So you rock up at breakfast time, you're offered a pig's trotter. Did, they didn't know you were coming. How did they receive no, you? No, I mean, I think one of the great things about being a journalist is that it is a proper profession and you can go into any situation and ask anyone questions. And if you're a kind of curious George person, which I definitely am, it's just the perfect career because I just I'm incessantly curious about how everyone lives their lives and sometimes people will say no but actually I think a lot of people wherever they live around the world they want to share their experiences and they're very happy to talk and as long as you have a good degree of trust and you are an honest reporter and you report exactly what you've heard I think that relationship is a very sort of good and true relationship. 
it sounds like you had an amazing time, you know, working as a journalist in South America. So why did you leave? What was the catalyst? Basically, my boyfriend, Ed, who is now my husband, father of my three teenage children. There's always a bloke involved, isn't there? There really is. <laughs> he got offered a job in Caracas, in Venezuela, and I got offered a job in Bogota, in Colombia. And they do look quite close together, if you look at the world map. <laughs> but actually, they're not very close together. It's a it's a big flight between the two capitals and so we sort of thought we need to find a job at least in the same capital city and then London became the obvious destination for both of us but also we had um, you know parents who were getting elderly and we got to that point where we'd lived abroad for so long that if we didn't go back to the UK I think we probably would never have been able to come back to the UK to live because it was just such a great lifestyle and and London is a fantastic city but it's not necessarily the easiest city to live in. That's interesting. Why what what makes you say that in what way? It's an expensive city. It's a large city to get about in and wherever you work, whatever you do, you have to go to work on, you know, on the tube, which <laughs> I always found, you know, just a like not the best way to get to work it is a shocker i mean I'm, luckily as a freelancer i don't have to get it at commuting i make all my appointments you know sort of after 10 o'clock but the rare time i'm stuck in someone else's commuting hour i'm like i'm so shocked i forget i live in london i forget how awful it is to be squashed on a platform and wait for three tubes and then they're cancelled and you have to go up and try and get another one and then you're all stuck underground everyone's hot everyone's angry it is a bit shocking yeah i think it's just it's a you know it's a challenge it's a proper capital city it's a more challenging place to live and then also I think when you're when you've been a news reporter you are sort of addicted to adrenaline and I think it took me probably a year to sort of come down from that kind of daily wake up or oh, what's going on what's the story what are we going to go out and cover was it hard to assimilate back into British life I think the first year was probably challenging. I mean, I had a great job because I came back as features editor at Marie Claire. Did you? Oh, my God, that's amazing. Which was a, a fantastic job. But I do remember my first day at work, they had a beauty sale where they sell all the products from the beauty cupboard. And I had literally come from, well, a country where there was a civil war and I'd landed in the middle of a beauty sale <laughs> Marie at Marie Claire. Claire. I can just imagine. And the culture shock was just so enormous. I mean, but for a start, what you wear for your first day in the office, I'd be panicking. Actually, if you're working in a magazine where there are properly fashionable people, you just learn so quickly. There's just actually no point in competing whatsoever, which is almost liberating. And they were so nice, the um, people in the fashion department. It was actually a really lovely place to work, Marie Claire. It was really great. And there was a seminal fashion editor there called Liz Walker who did things like took me to Paris for the day to see an Alexander McQueen show which was one of the most theatrically beautiful things that I have ever seen I mean it, it was it was a great place to work and Marie Claire's always had a it's always had a bit of a brain compared to some of the other magazines well, in that features particularly there was always a double or page feature or more of something that was going on in South America or something like that. There was, all, and, and that might have been, your, I'm guessing that that was your role. Yeah, that's why they brought me in, because at that stage, Marie Claire was doing a lot of foreign features, and they were all about women and women's issues and human rights and things like that. So I was commissioning stories on things like illegal abortion in Tibet, and that won an Am Amnesty International Prize, actually, the reporter who did that story. So it was, they were, they were really, they were very interesting, the stories that I was commissioning. Um, but I missed the writing and the reporting. I always wanted to be the person who I was sending to do 
the stories. Rather than sat at a desk sending people off to do fabulous yes, things. Yes, but it was really, really, it was great fun. And, you know, it was in a period where journalism, it was pre, pre-internet, so there was still money in journalism. And I, I remember at Marie Claire, every Friday afternoon, there would be a trolley with sort of a drinks trolley would arrive and rattle through the office at, like, three in the afternoon. I mean, those days are, are long gone now. Oh, but uh, what, magazines, I was... My, my, I certainly was. All my friends were. People were obsessed with magazines for a good ten years. I used to buy all of them every month, you know, and devour them. And I guess it was pre... Obviously, the internet was around, but it was pre that sort of stuff on the internet the internet was like for sort of emailing and and that sort of thing and online entertainment in that way hadn't sort of taken off yet no it was it was different days and then after that i went to work at the times for three years as assistant editor on the times magazine and again that was commissioning really really interesting stories but i think the urge to write had never left me because i i love writing and i find that sort of it's kind of a way that I feel balanced is, is if I'm writing. That's my sort of fulcrum, really. So eventually I decided to take the plunge and go back to, to writing again. But I had three very, very happy years at the Times as well. And it's paid off, you know, with your books and everything. Has travel been continued to be a part of your life since the whole South American experience? Yeah, actually, um, we went back to Nicaragua a few years ago with all three children because I wanted to go back and my husband wanted to go back. We hadn't been there for 30 years and we wanted to show the children the country. And I, I was writing a piece for British Airways magazine, actually. And so we all ended up going on this fantastic holiday to Nicaragua. And um, it's a, an amazing country, Nicaragua. It's quite small. And so within two weeks, you can go and visit sort of UNESCO, World Heritage, colonial cities you can go and surf on beautiful pacific beaches you can climb volcanoes you can go into jungle you can travel down the rio san juan which is almost like central america's answer to the amazon it's got an amazing biodiversity because of the wars there were lots of areas where people just didn't go for years and years and years and and it's just it's a really really amazing country i mean unfortunately over the past two years it's had its, you know, sort of share of troubles again. But hopefully it will come out of that because it really was a, a fantastic place to take a family on holiday. And our three teenagers were just completely captivated by, by it all because it, it was just sort of, there was no, there's no sort of health and safety there. So you mm-hmm. can climb up to the edge of a volcano and lie prone and look into the crater and see all the lava without anyone worrying that you're going to fall in. And it has pros and cons, that, doesn't it, you know? <laughs> and we even, there was another volcano where they, they do this very unique thing, which is surfing down the side of the volcano on surfboards. And so you climb up, which takes about two hours, and then you get to the top, and you're given these jumpsuits and goggles to put on, and then you get on these surfboards, and you surf down the side of this volcano. I mean, for me, it was completely terrifying, because it was so fast and once you'd started there was no way that you could stop you just had to get to the bottom oh my god are you sitting or standing or what are you doing my kids stood up but i sat down there was no way that i could have stood up could they stand up and stay standing they, yeah up they could the... they could stay stable and also are maybe they because they were shorter than... just... <laughs> they're quite you know they're quite good in the water but i think they actually they didn't have the fear basically so yeah. they could they could do it 
but there was no way that I was going to stand up on the surfboard and go down this volcano. And it was only when we got to the bottom that I asked the guide who'd taken us if it was an active volcano, thinking, of course it's not. But actually, it, it hadn't been active for quite a few years, but it was still an active volcano. And I was just so relieved that I didn't know that. You surfed down the side of an active volcano. I think volcano. it's the only place in the world where you can do that. I can and, imagine. And it was really... I mean, who thinks of that? I don't know how they thought that one up. The sand was incredibly fine, and it did really work, but I do not know who the first person was to I take know. a surfboard Yeah, we'll get a few top. surfboards and uh, get people to surf down. So that was, that was really, really interesting. But the um, travelling into the, into the rainforest there was, was really amazing as well. I mean, we properly saw animals in the wild, you know, like sloths and alligators, and it was just, it was really, really a magical place to go, and not very expensive once you'd got the flight out there it was a, just a great place to go and we went back to the house where my husband and I had had this period where we lived in a house with another couple for three months in Managua because I was very ill with a kind of infectious illness and the woman from the other couple actually both of them had hepatitis so we we lived in this house all of us together in Managua during the Sandinista revolution where there weren't very many doctors for three months together trying not to sort of cross contaminate each other's food and everything and Ed and I found this house and um, there were no addresses or anything like that but we asked if anyone knew where Lucho lived which was the name of the owner of the house and we went to this same house and Lucho the owner was still living in this house in Managua no it was oh incredible my God. Yeah. did he remember you yes he did he remembered us from years ago that's amazing yeah no it was a really was he in good health he was he was in good health i mean he was he'd grown very cynical over Daniel Ortega, who'd led the Sandinista revolution. But he was, it, it was just the same. The house was just the same. It was amazing to go back there. Do you still get to use your Spanish? Yes, I do, because my husband's half Colombian, so my mother-in-law's Colombian, so I speak in Spanish with her quite a lot. We tried to encourage the children to speak Spanish a lot when they were little, but of course they never want to speak Spanish with their parents, but they actually all do speak reasonable Spanish. I'm in that situation now, and actually when I was seven, I moved to Spain to live, and my parents have been there more or less full-time ever since. They spend a lot of time here now helping me look after my kids, but we've still got the place there, and we go there every school holiday. And I'm in this situation where I think, shall I move the kids there? Because I had such a great upbringing there. But then you get tied to London and to England and to all the great things that happen here. And there are very exciting things that happen here, particularly in work, that don't necessarily happen in Spain, would be harder to come by. Did you ever have the urge to uproot your kids and live somewhere else with them? I actually think, I know this isn't a sort of really fashionable opinion, but I actually think London is a really great city to bring yeah. up kids. I agree, I totally agree. I think it's... It's just got better and better. There's so much for them to do. And they do become independent quite quickly because they can get around on the tube and on buses. But they really make the most of living in London in a way that makes me feel almost guilty. I mean, they know exactly what's going on in terms of music, art, everything. They know where to get cheap tickets, free tickets. They're, they're very good at sort of operating this city in a way that I wasn't possibly because I came from the middle of nowhere and so it's taken me for ages really to get a grip on big city life but they're really good at it and I think London is a really dynamic energy giving city and 
I just love its multiculturalism, and I, I do now feel like a true Londoner. It's a great city to belong to, it really is, and it's a very difficult city to leave because of that, because, like you said, particularly for children, people come to London and they go, oh, I couldn't live in London, because they think we all live on Oxford Street. But, you know, how many times do you go to Oxford Street? It's literally once a week, you know, if, if that. Well, London is, London is a series of a villages. A series of villages, as everyone says, and I'm in Greenwich, and it's beautiful and leafy and green. You could be in the countryside sometimes walking over Blackheath, but you've got, you know, world-class museums and restaurants and art and culture and music on your doorstep step as well i don't need to sell it to you you're already sold uh, before i ask you my last question do you think there's anything i would have missed of your travel highlights one of the reasons that i wanted to move abroad apart from the recession in the uk at the time was that i decided that i wanted to write novels but i felt that i just didn't have any life experience whatsoever so i thought oh if i take this job in latin america surely i will have so many experiences that will be able to inspire the basis for different books. And I, in fact, started writing a novel when I was living in Latin America. But the irony to me is that having gone through all that and lived abroad for more than six years, I then came home and I started writing novels that were all set either in Norfolk, which is where I grew up on a farm in isolated North Norfolk, or the book that I've just written, Beneath the Surface, that's all set in the Fens, which is a similarly watery, flat, even more desolate landscape north of Cambridge. And I sort of realised I, I didn't need to travel thousands of miles to be able to write books because everything is sort of there. All you, life is there. All life it? is there. Do you have any ambitions to write any books that involve going somewhere? I'm just thinking of a nice little, you know, you can pop off to Morocco and do a few weeks' research. might be quite fun. I think that would be really fantastic, but... The truth is, when you're writing a book, you can only write the book that you're writing. And more often than not, the idea that I've had for a book, I mean, it does evolve quite a lot during the writing of it, but it's all quite sort of self-contained in the way it comes to me. There's sort of characters and then there's different scenes and it gradually all starts to sort of meld together. And it's almost impossible to think in terms of... I mean, I knew with this current book that I wanted to set it in the fens because the landscape is almost a character in the book because... It has sort of it has an impact on the people who live there, on the characters, but it also has an impact on what happens. And sometimes I do see a landscape and I think, yes, I would like to include that. But I don't think I could almost put the cart before the horse and say, OK, I'd like to go to Mexico, therefore I'm going to set this book there. It all has to be sort of integral to the whole process. It's more organic than that, by the sounds of it. Exactly. Well, that sounds wonderful, and I can't wait to read this beauty that I've got sitting on my knee. And I'm going to ask you my last question, which is always about music, because for many people, and for me, definitely, music is a big passion, and I always think that travel and music go hand in hand. If you had to choose one song that reminds you of a time or memorable time or place of travel, what would that one song be? I think one song that reminds me of my time in Latin America, ironically, is a song by Nick Cave called The Ship Song. I hadn't come across Nick Cave at all when I was in the UK, but when we were living in Latin America, an American journalist from Portland gave me a tape of an Australian singer called Nick Cave, and I was just completely blown away by the sort of lyricism of his That's song amazing. and also the whole rock and roll element of it because I'd grown up in Norfolk and bizarrely in, in North Norfolk during this period of my childhood, 
all my teenage years, there was an amazing place called the West Runton Pavilion on the coast, very close to where we lived, where all the punk bands did their warm-up act before they toured the UK. And so live music had played this enormous role in my teenage years. And I got to see all the well-known punk bands because they did their warm-up act in this old hall on the coastline. And it was a sort of incredible period. I mean, none of us could really believe that West Runton, for this short period, felt like the centre of the world. But it really did feel like the centre of the world. And anyway, Nick Cave, in a sense, was a sort of logical progression, I think, from all these punk bands that I'd seen growing up in Norfolk. Where Nick Cave has been quite a big part of my life as well, because I used to live in Brighton, and I love his music too. He's such a character, but I used to see him a lot, you know, walking around town. But also, one of the most wonderful places to see him was sitting outside his beach hut on Hove Seafront, because Nick Cave is, you know, very pale, very dark hair, all dressed in black, you know, big pointy boots, you know, cowboy boots or... Uh, Chelsea boots, probably, and they're not what they're called, like Winkle. What's anyway, whatever Nick Cave wears, you know, you can picture him if you know him. If not, Google him. He's amazing. You'll, you'll love his music, and also his wife, you know, and she's got the Vampire's Wife clothing range now, and you know, they look so dramatic. And the two of them sitting outside their beach hut, all these brightly coloured rows of beach huts on their deck chairs. He'd always invariably have his feet up on a stool or something in front of it. You're like, yeah, that's Nick Cave and his beach hut, and that's what I love about this town. No. I think he's an incredibly talented person. I mean, that was a long time ago that that tape was given to me and he's still making the most amazing music and sort of breaking musical frontiers and just doing what he loves doing. So that moment when you're listening to Nick Cave in South America, tell me about one of those moments. That, I remember that was in um, Costa Rica and I think it was during the period just before I joined Reuters when I was still living in Costa Rica. And I remember it was when we were packing up our flat to move to another country. And I think I sort of thought, oh, at least I'm taking all this music with me because music travels with you wherever you go. And music for me is actually really important with my work as well because I have a playlist for every book that I write and I use music as a trigger to make me start working it's like I have the same song that I play every time I start writing a different book so that it acts as a trigger to make me sit down to work it's that's fascinating and so I music's always been really really important to me and still on my playlist for my current book there is a Nick Cave song not the ship song a different song and I think that's just so amazing how you can carry music with you and and someone who you don't know has such a sort of important thread that runs through your life that's wonderful I'm going to steal that music travels with you that's absolutely fabulous thank you so much for coming on the big travel podcast thank you for having me Thank you so much, Fiona. In the coming weeks on the Big Travel Podcast, we have Muslim millennial solo female traveller Ezra Al-Hamal and the wonderful author and journalist Rick Samader. 